we talk a lot about food, not, not just on Blueprint, where well, it's our job. No, no, food, it's fair to say, is something of a, an abiding cultural preoccupation. Uh, ever-expanding sections of bookshops devoted to cookbooks. They are the biggest selling books in the world. Uh, chefs like Anthony Bourdain, Gordon Ramsay, Nigella, Jamie Oliver, the celebrities of our age. Food competitions, reality food TV. We know our kingfish crudo from our kingfish otherwise. And yet, amidst all of this, we rarely talk about appetite, that thing what you assume is at the heart of it all, our, our want for food, or on the other hand, our desire to be free of that, the wellness diets, the paleo diets, the keto diets, the handfuls of Ozempic. Our relationship to food, in other words, is confusing, perhaps a tad confused. Uh, to help us make sense of this, we called on Josh Cohen. He's Professor of Modern Literary Theory at Goldsmiths, University of London, and, more importantly, for our purposes, a practising psychoanalyst and therefore well-versed in the contradictions and struggles in which the contemporary individual finds themselves admired. Josh, welcome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Can I, can I begin with perhaps what, a, a, a fine distinction uh, between comfort food and comfort eating. Can you draw a line between those two things? Yeah. Um, comfort food um, is something that we identify as bringing us a, a, a feeling of a very specific kind of satisfaction. Um, it It identifies a kind of spot in us that needs to be touched gently, warmly, familiarly. Um, comfort eating is what happens when that spot can't really be satisfied. When you find that instead of getting that sort of very satisfying, precise hit, the very thing you ask for, the thing you ask for starts to feel elusive. And then you're eating in the hope that you might hit it. But the tendency with comfort eating is always that the more you try to hit it, the more you feel whatever you want is eluding you. It feels, in just the way you describe it there, there's a, a tremendous inter intimacy in this. And I guess yeah, what could be more intimate than, than ingestion? Well, yes, that's right. And it, it more intimate and also more primitive. Um, hmm. I mean, coming from the perspective of psychoanalysis, um, Freud has this wonderful line about how we learn this very basic faculty of judging whether we like something. And he says the, the first way we do this is through ingestion. We stick things in in our mouths, and if they, you know, if if they feel sort of syntonic, if they feel as though they belong in our mouths, then we say we like them, and if we say not, then we spit them out, and they become enemy foreign bodies. So yeah, ingestion is is um, is very intimate and very primitive. And yet, in that relationship that you described uh, of of comfort and, and and comfort eating, I, I mean, I wonder how much of that is is a conscious act, and how much I mean, especially in in, in modern eating is 
at some level routinized or or just is 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 mechanical yeah i i think it 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 does always threaten to become a bit mechanical um that i think this has a lot to do as well with the science of snacking and the way certain kinds of snack are actually formulated uh, very intricately and over a long period to be addictive um to mm. sort of stimulate and arouse that that feeling of moorishness um there are certain brands of potato chips that you know have really been honed in this regard um <laughs> and indeed you know if uh, if you know their their advertising taglines they they really sort of pretty brazenly promote themselves as you know uh, it, it sort of arousing a feeling of insatiability which is a real complication to this little symphony of desire isn't it where where it's being pla- preyed upon <laughs> manipulated yeah yeah that's right and in a way food in that sense, you could say is um, it is the the exemplary kind of neoliberal commodity. If you think of neoliberal economics as kind of stimulating our appetites, uh, the feeling in particular of lack, of needing more, of feeling that we haven't quite got what the the thing that we wanted, and we need to sort of reach further in order to find it. I mean, f- food, I think, is a fantastic vehicle for playing out that anxiety. If we took it back before that period of of, of, of this relationship being dominated by economic forces, back to some more mm. innocent time, does that, yeah. does that food relationship, I mean, how does that change in that period? How have we complicated it? I think we've 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 complicated it by um, creating this really tantalising array, this industry that continually feeds and stimulates our appetite for novelty, and so in a way throws us all these confusing neural signals. What if I want this? What if I want that? It doesn't allow us to settle and rest in a kind of reliable but also circumscribed series of things that we might like and want. It doesn't give us a repertory of, say, daily, nightly dishes that we like and that we can go back to Mm. and that become sort of, you know, the staple of our nutritional patterns. I think there's there's this way, and, and, and of course, restaurant culture is complicit in this as well as supermarket culture. It's, it's constantly trying to, um, to, to, divert us and tell us that there's always something new on the horizon that will excite and tantalize us that bit more. I wonder how much this, this I mean, we'll come to our, you know, the, the, the ways in which we practice an aversion to food in a moment, but I wonder that, that, that idea of, mm. of comfort and comfort eating, how much of that is, is paradoxically created by this plethora, this, this state of confusion, so we retreat to something which gives us that, that psychological ease. Yeah, I, I I think that's right. I I think that um, people who work at the the, the coalface of um, of the industry, for example, restaurant critics, um, will often talk about sort of you know having uh, had 
you know, sort of extravagant dinners of oysters and sweetbreads and 12 different kinds of sauce reduction. Um, <laughs> we'll just want to go to, a, you know, to a burger bar and, and, and you know, just go to those flavors and textures which are completely known, reliable, that will not, in a way, throw you off, right? They, they, they deliver exactly what they promise. And I think that that, that perhaps is a quality um, in the pleasure of eating that we are always threatening to lose, I think. You know that 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 sense of of knowing in advance what we want and and going mm. to it for that reason. Well, into that area, Phil, this, this next idea, and and this is this is a fine crossover between the, the psychoanalytic and and the gastronomic. I suspect mm. the notion of a guilty pleasure that is a real uh, an awkward complexity. Yeah, yeah, that's right, and I think. In a way, you find it right at the outset of the, the, you know, the life of the life cycle of the human being. That when a baby begins to feed, um, in a way, when you talked before about going back to a more innocent time, mm. um, you are, I think, talking uh, about a historical era. But we could also think about a more historical. A more innocent time in the in the life in the life cycle of the human being, um, the the baby starts basically being fed one substance and being satisfied by one that by that one substance. Um, it's all that they need. Um, it's all that they really want for a period. Um, they don't know anything about uh, novelty um, or variety, and yet. We need to be a little bit careful about thinking of it in sort of purely biological, nutritive terms, because I think that 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 what we find when we actually spend time watching babies feed is that it, it's quite an ambiguous experience in a way. Yes, there is a, a mouth that is taking in food that is being ingested through the elementary canal and that is doing its biological work of, of providing the baby with enough nutrition, yes. But there are other forces at work as well, which have more to do with pleasure, right? The milk, mm. the warmth of the milk breaks over the baby's lips. There are um, smells, there are textures of skin and flesh that are being experienced and, and um, renewed with with every feed. And so th- there is this way in which from the very beginning, you know, from a psychoanalytic perspective, um, elusive pleasures invade, um, if you like, the, the, the event of, of eating. And they, they, from the beginning, it makes it a little more complicated, um, a little more exciting, and therefore potentially a little more guilty than just having a feed. You know, um, well, you, you can I- imagine um, a, a baby who has all kinds of very rudimentary imaginings about what is going on, um, as as you know, the the breasts the breast pumps out this milk, and 
it's both very abundant and loving and giving. But, you know, the the great sort of, well, Hungarian-born British psychoanalyst Melanie Klein um, had this idea that um, not only is it very giving and loving and and, uh, generous, but there's something about the breast that can be very persecuting because, of course, it withdraws itself Hmm. and it makes you want it. Um, and it makes you feel that uh, you don't control um, what's coming in and what's being withheld. And I think it's at that point that also that feelings get into the whole process of feeding and can make us feel as though there's more at stake here than just getting filled up. I wonder, in, in a biological sense. I, I wonder too if, if that that idea of guilt. I mean, that that moment of of the baby feeding, for a long time culturally, and still in many cultures, is perhaps the the, the single moment of of abundance in in a person's relationship with food. That yeah. from that point on, food is what you can get. Food is what is available. That abundance is a very rare pleasure indeed. Is there a, a residual sense of that for us in this time of extraordinary, you know, conjured abundance? Is that something that is still nagging at us? I think I think so, and I think that the thing is, we perhaps it implants in us uh, a, a kind of fantasy of total satiation, because hmm. there is something about that image of the sleeping rosy-cheeked baby who's just had a feed that I think still represents to us the apex of, if you like, the achievement of satisfaction. Um, we, we feel that there's something about this baby's sort of bliss that we are always wanting to get back to it sort of seems to give us an image of, you know, the the, the apex of human happiness. I, I suspect that um, goes beyond food, but I'm, I'm reluctant to take you there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other part of this, though, is, of course, the, the, the way in which we react to the ease of this relationship and that we, we, we punish ourselves for it in some respects, that we mm-hmm. force ourselves onto various regimes, that we curtail our input. I mean, what, what's that acting out? Well, I think it's, it's acting out a kind of quite intricate um, inverse of, of the other side, you know, the, the sort of the abundance that in a way you've got this culture of, you know, people talk about food porn and there is this pornographic arousal of Mm. appetite. And I think it works really hand in glove with this more punishing, persecuting relationship to appetite. Um, If there's an appetite that has to be aroused and excited and fulfilled, then almost as a kind of counterpart, there's also one that has to be curtailed and humiliated and be made to feel that past a certain threshold, it's become greed, excess, you know. And I think worst worst of all, a lack of self-control. 
you know that that there's a point at which instead of you riding the horse the horse is riding you with with appetite and i think that's what um that that's what the punitive relationship to to food starts to be about your your most recent book losers is is not as the title might mm. suggest to some a, a diet manifesto it's <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's it's not. I mean, I, I you know, it, it, it maybe it should have been, um, it, it, uh, because I, I I do think that um, you know there was this um, uh, very successful reality TV series. I think in the US and the UK. I don't know if um, if you guys had it too. The Biggest Loser, mm-hmm. um, and it was such an interesting. You know, it was a it was a weight loss reality TV show in which um, a morbidly obese. Uh, you know, boot camp uh, members competed for who could lose the most weight during a certain period. And uh, I think it it played in such a wily and such a cruel way on the ambiguity of the word loser. But in in a more particular sense, that notion of loss and and what we might attempt to to fill that void with, that chasm in our lives, Mm. enter food. Yeah. Yes, I, I I think that's the way that um, a kind of interlocking culture of advertising, cookbooks, um, celebrity chefs, food, uh, reality-based TV shows, all of them, I think, sort of play on the kind of the tantalizing risk of of loss and losing. Um, we're always trying to identify the the dish, the eating experience, the uh, the menu that is sort of going. <laughs> so it's sort of to overcome the very possibility of loss. You know that that mm. that, that it would be uh, a kind of ultimate fulfillment in which nothing would be missed i think we have this fantasy about the perfect meal that is a kind of conquest of 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 loss or lack so the perfect meal in other constructions can be something altogether different and those mm. people fill with the always almost the moral injunction to be to be thin fit uh, chiseled, yeah. The the notion of the meal that might feed that objective, or the, the absence of meal that might feed that objective that that's a different. It's still, I suspect, dealing with the possibility of loss, but in a in a rather different way. Yes, I think it it sort of almost heroicizes loss, and I think when you when you make discipline and control sexy then it, it, in a sense you can create a completely different food aesthetic um which r- reflects a, a certain kind of a, a very different kind of pleasure not the pleasure of indulgence and excess but the pleasure of a kind of streamlined you know m- sort of modernist food culture if you like which which we one of its names is clean eating hmm. and and clean eating is a kind of expunged eating it's um <laughs> it, it's it's a gastronom it's a gastronomic minimalist aesthetic um uh 
you know, where the colours are transparent or translucent. We don't get anything kind of muddy or opaque in there, anything that that speaks of richness or overabundance. Um, you know, we're, we're in, instead of sort of wading in swamps, we're, we're swimming in limpid pools with clean eating. What a wonderful and complex machine we are, Josh. <laughs> So, yeah. so many varieties yeah. in our experience. Uh, do you do you have a yeah. comfort food? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I have many. Um, <laughs> I, I would say my my my, my go to actually is just a, a tin of really good sardines on uh, on buttered sourdough. There you go, you and Mister Tumnus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, thank Indeed. you. Thank you so yeah. very much. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Josh Cohen, Professor of Modern Literary Theory at Goldsmiths, University of London, psychoanalyst, author of of many books. Uh, His latest, as mentioned, Losers. You'll find that in shops and libraries. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.